So let me ask you a question. Have you ever blown it? And I mean just really blown it. I'm not talking about you stepped on somebody's foot. I'm not talking about you insulted the sermon from last Sunday. No, wait a second. Okay. I'm not talking about little things, petty things, unimportant things. I'm talking about big things. Ever had a train wreck in your life? Maybe it was an accident, right? But the results were devastating. There was a car wreck. It was your fault. Somebody was, was hurt, even killed. And you had to, you had to face that. Maybe, maybe it wasn't an accident at all. Maybe you had an affair and got caught. Maybe you shoplifted and got busted. Maybe you lied on your resume. They found out and you lost your job. Somehow you broke the rules. You got a lot of explaining to do. Man, we live in a broken world. And the reality is we are all broken people. And maybe you have been in that kind of situation where you did something really bad and you knew it. A relationship was damaged because of it. You know, I got to thinking, if you knew everything there was to know about me, you probably wouldn't let me be the preacher here. If we knew everything there was to be about you, we probably wouldn't let you come here. I'm just kidding. You can come. You can come. We might not sit beside you if we knew everything, but I mean, at least you can still, can still be here. Now, I mean, we are broken people. We have all, we have all failed. We've all had to swallow our pride, admit our failures, express remorse, try to fix a damaged relationship. If we didn't do those things, we at least probably should have. Country singer uh, Carrie Underwood has eight Grammy Awards, three times been named the Female Country Artist of the Year. For 11 years, she has sung the opening song for Sunday Night Football. Carrie grew up singing in church, and, and truthfully, she's got a, a pretty good reputation, especially compared to so many people who are famous entertainers today. You remember one of her early hits, maybe the first big one, was Jesus Take the Wheel. It was about a woman who was about to be in an accident, and she kind of prays and cries out for Jesus to take the, the steering wheel, but then she's also then sort of becoming a prayerful person who's going to turn her life around and let Jesus take over her life. Well, Carrie's next big hit was Before He Cheats, and those lyrics were a little darker than Jesus Take the Wheel. They were all about a woman who was getting revenge on her boyfriend for cheating, and so she scratches the paint job on his souped-up four-wheel drive. She carves her name into the leather seats, smashes the headlights, slashes the tires. I think she gave the steering wheel to Jesus, but anyway, I mean, she wrecked this guy's car, okay? And then the chorus ends this way. You remember, maybe next time he'll think before he cheats. Maybe next time he'll think. The problem is, we just don't think. That's just it. We don't think. We don't think about the slippery slope that maybe we're on. We don't think about consequences. We don't think about guilt and shame and regret when we are caught up in the moment. We do stupid things. We do. And we know that they're wrong. And we don't stop to think how the fallout could be devastating. I may have told you before, several years ago, about a guy that I met when I was in jail. I was not in jail. I was visiting jail. And I met this guy, and, and he told me that he was an alcoholic. And that one night, while he was with a friend, he sat down at a bar. He, he was in recovery. He was making progress, but he sat down at a bar one night, and he left the bar 
few hours later, and he was drunk. His friend was in the front seat with him. He went the wrong way on Highway 46 up in Indiana. There was a head-on collision, and his friend ended up in the morgue in Indianapolis. And I sat in jail. This guy was on his way to prison. And he told me, I sat there too long. I sat there too long. If he could go back and undo anything, he would undo that, that going into that bar and having those hours and everything being devastated in his life and the consequences, his friend never coming back. And, and, and he can't have a do-over on that one. It's over. It's too late. Have you ever done something, I mean, really just awful? Have you ever blown it in the kind of way that either you hope nobody ever finds out or everybody found out, and either way, it's been terrible for you? Ever destroyed a relationship because of, of a sinful decision that you made? And maybe the relationship has been restored and everything is beautiful today. Maybe you tried to fix it and you couldn't, and, and they would not let you. What do you do when you're hurting or somebody else is hurting because of sin? And then what happens when the relationship is with God that's broken? What happens if, like that little boy on the ladder there in that picture, you're trying to, to work your way up to heaven and you feel like you've come as high as you can go and you just can't get there? You know, God could be all about retribution, couldn't he? I mean, he could kind of like that Carrie Underwood song. He could sort of trash our souped-up car and pay us back for the cheating and for the lying and for being selfish and being cruel. He knows, he knows about that paper that you plagiarized in college, even though nobody else knows. He knows about your flirting at the gym, even though your husband doesn't know. He knows about the deleted history on your computer and all the websites that you went to. Nobody in the world knows you have a drug problem, but he knows. You've got the windows, you know, shut at your house. The neighbors can't hear what's going on inside. But every scream and every curse and every vile thing that is said makes its way to heaven because the Bible says that nothing in all creation is hidden from his sight. Friends, the reality is that sin damages our relationship with the Lord. And because we all sin, we have all harmed that relationship. And the question then remains, what do we do when we have damaged our relationship with God? You know, for these five weeks, we are in a series that's all about grace. And it's called the grace effect. It's not that there are five different kinds of grace. It's more like five facets of the same diamond. Okay, it's, it's, it's five sort of dimensions, expressions of this same beautiful offer from the Lord. The Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, God's grace to me was not without effect. It has a profound effect on our lives. And we began five weeks ago talking about the grace that saves. If you're on the outside looking in when it comes to Christianity... If you've never had your sins washed away, if you've never surrendered to Christ and know what your eternal destiny is, man, God's grace is for you. But grace is about more than, than simply being saved. It, there's a transforming grace, which means that God is working on us. He's working in us. He, he's shaping us into the people that he wants us to be. It's kind of a day in and day out for the rest of our lives kind of grace. 
Next, we talked about the grace that empowers. The Bible teaches that through God's grace, he gives us gifts so that we can live productive lives, that we use our giftedness to be purposeful, to make a difference. And then last week, we talked about the grace that sustains us. When we're going through tough times, God promises that his grace will help us endure and even prevail. Well, today, we're going to wrap up this series with the idea of the grace that restores I mean, what happens when a follower of Jesus just really blows it? What happens when you're walking with God for a while, all of a sudden you realize you're walking alone, and it's not God that has wandered from the path, it's you or it's me. What do we do? I mean, you know how this, this works. Maybe, maybe you kind of start out by just kind of letting things slip a little bit, nothing drastic. Maybe you bend the rules. Maybe you kind of lower your standards. You relax your values just a little bit. All of a sudden, you step out of line in a big way. You do something that's just pretty terrible. And you think, oh my gosh, how did I get here? How did I reach this point? How did I let this happen? And you can't even stand to look at yourself in the mirror. You, you, you've damaged this relationship with God. How do you restore that? Well, man, if that is you in any capacity... You picked a great day to come because we are going to talk about this very thing, this beautiful gift of grace that that Jesus has for us. Until you take your final breath, man, there is always this opportunity for a second chance, for a tenth chance, for a hundredth chance, a thousandth chance to repair the damage. But we have to take advantage of it. We have to respond to his offer In the New Testament, there are a couple of books written by the Apostle Peter. He wrote two letters, 1 Peter and 2 Peter. And he's writing to the Christians who have been kind of scattered because of persecution. They're in northern Asia Minor, just getting pounded. And he writes to them. But he says this in chapter 5 of 1 Peter, starting in verse 8. He says, be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that your brothers and sisters throughout the world are undergoing the same kinds of sufferings. And listen, the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you've suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. Notice that Peter says we have a responsibility to be alert, to be careful. That Satan and his forces in this world, they want nothing more than to mess up your life and mine. They want us to blow it in a big way, to fall into sin, to take our eyes off the finish line and do something stupid. And and the devil loves when that happens, for one thing, because sin makes Jesus look bad. Right? When we blow it and non-believers watch Christians who, who just you know, implode and they say, well, yeah, you see Christians are just all a bunch of hypocrites. I mean, they're no different than anybody else. Church is such a waste of time. Faith doesn't mean anything. And, and we kind of shine a, a bad light on Christ. Sin hurts because we create a barrier between us and God. It's not like God's not right there ready to restore us and to be in relationship with us. What happens is that we sin, we feel guilty, so we put God at arm's length. I mean, how can I pray I'm such a mess? 
How can I go to church? I, I'm, I'm too messed up for that. And, and, and we totally get this wrong in how we look at our relationship with him. But sin does that. This damaged relationship then can undermine our own opportunity for influence. Maybe somebody wants to serve, but they just they feel too guilty. Or maybe everybody else is like, you know what? You, you broke trust. And so people don't have the opportunity to teach or to work with kids or, or to play in the band or, or, or count money or greet or any of those things because we've become a distraction. It's not, it's not a punishment. It's just that we broke trust. Peter says that Satan prowls around like a lion and he's looking for people who are vulnerable, people who can be isolated and attacked and ultimately devoured. And I wonder, listen, I wonder when Peter wrote that, if he was remembering back to the night before Jesus was crucified. Here's Peter, one of the 12 disciples. He spent three years traveling with Jesus and serving in ministry and doing everything he could to help grow the kingdom of God. Peter's a faithful follower. He's a good man. He is far from perfect. I mean, he kept putting his foot in his mouth. He, he, uh, he was impetuous. He blew it time after time. But on this night, man, he was not a faithful follower of Christ at all. The lion was on the prowl on this night. It happened just after Jesus was arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. Peter follows at a distance as Jesus is led away. Peter goes into the courtyard of the high priest while Jesus is taken inside. A servant girl sees him and, and she is convinced that he is one of the followers of Jesus, a disciple. He's terrified. All eyes are on him. He's in the enemy's camp. And so he denies that he knows Jesus. Jesus had predicted a few hours earlier this is exactly what Peter would do. And so three times he's accused of collusion with Jesus. Three times he denies it. The last time with a curse, with an oath. And Luke tells us in his gospel, he's the only one that tells us this, that just as Peter makes that third and final denial, just as the rooster crows as Jesus predicted it would, Luke says, at that moment, the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And suddenly the Lord's words flashed through Peter's mind. Before the rooster crows tomorrow morning, you will deny three times that you even know me. And Peter left the courtyard weeping bitterly. At that exact moment of his third denial, soldiers were leading Jesus across the courtyard. And, and Peter, he, 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 he denies Christ he seals it with a curse, and as that leads to silence, he looks across the courtyard and he realizes that Jesus heard every word. And their eyes lock for just a, a moment, and then the tears flood his eyes and blur his vision, and he runs off into the night. And you talk about a bad day. Peter could not sleep that night. The guilt of what he had done was just so oppressive, too much to bear. The next morning, he watches as they drive spikes into Jesus' hands and feet, and he realizes the last words Jesus would ever hear from him, at least in his mind, or that denial and that curse. But then Sunday morning comes, and it's Easter Sunday, and the women go to the tomb to help embalm Jesus' body and he's not there, but an angel is there who says, don't be alarmed. 
You're looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. Listen, go tell his disciples and Peter. He's going ahead of you into Galilee. There you'll see him just as he told you. The angel says, go tell the disciples, but man, don't forget to tell Peter. Peter really is going to want to know this. Jesus can't wait to see them. Jesus wants to see them. And we know from other verses in the Bible that that same day, Jesus appeared to Peter. And surely they had some kind of conversation. We don't know exactly what it was like. But we would assume that, that Peter just kind of stumbled all over himself saying he was sorry and, and Jesus said it was okay. But you know what? It was still uncomfortable. Things weren't like they had been before. Before the crucifixion, man, they spent all their time together, Peter and Jesus and the other disciples. And now Jesus would be there for a bit, then he'd go away. And he was on earth for 40 days after the crucifixion, but, but they didn't spend much time together. And, and Peter just couldn't get his bearings. They saw Jesus a couple of times. Then Jesus said, go up to Galilee. Wait for me up there. I'll come up soon. And so they do that. Maybe it's been a couple of days. Maybe it's been a couple of weeks. We don't know. And then Peter, he's just stir crazy. So he decides to go spend the night fishing. Six of the other disciples come along. They don't catch anything all night long. And then the next morning, a stranger on the shore calls out and says, hey, put your nets down one more time over there. And they did. And there was this amazing catch of fish and, of course, the stranger was Jesus. He's the guy that you want along on a fishing trip. And, and Peter is so excited when he sees that it's Jesus, he, just, he's, he can't wait for the boat. He just jumps in the water and he swims to shore. But I still picture him there, and, and he wants to be with Jesus, but he's still uncomfortable. He's kind of kicking the ground. He just doesn't know what to say. He knew that, that he had blown it. He knew Jesus knew, and he knew Jesus knew. And so Jesus initiates a conversation. It says in John 21, when they'd finished eating, they had a little breakfast there on the seashore. Jesus says to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me more than these? Oh, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus said, take care of my sheep. And a third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter's hurt because Jesus asked him a third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said, feed my sheep. Jesus kind of pulls Peter aside and three times asks him a very pointed question. Do you love me? And let's be honest, it's a fair question because Peter had denied even knowing him not long before. Peter, do you truly love me? And Peter assures Jesus each time, yes, I love you. And then Jesus gives him a job to do. I want you to feed my sheep. I want you to take care of my sheep. I want you to feed my lambs. And just this reminder, Peter, I've got, I've got work for you to do. You can't wallow in self-pity here. We got stuff to do. And he gave him this job. Step up to the plate. Invest your life in what matters. And so a few days later, on the day of Pentecost, seven weeks after the resurrection, Peter stands up before throngs of people. He preaches the first gospel sermon that's ever been preached. 3,000 people came to Christ that day. 
In Acts chapter 4, Peter and John are thrown into jail because they've been preaching about Jesus. They're commanded to not do it anymore. And he's not denying Jesus anymore. He says, you decide whether it's right to obey you rather than God. But we're going to stick with God on this one. In Acts chapter 10, Peter shares the gospel with Cornelius, a Roman centurion who becomes the first Gentile convert to Christianity. Peter did that. God allowed him this privilege and this opportunity. Peter wrote two books that are in our New Testament. And you say, what a comeback. Man, Jesus was showing Peter and he was showing us that that there's no defeat that's so devastating. There's no failure that's so final that you can't come back. Not if you're devoted to Christ. Listen, I'm telling you, there's no defeat so devastating There is no failure so final that you cannot come back if you're truly devoted to Christ. And I say, you know what, maybe maybe you've experienced a a setback of some kind. Maybe it's been a, a moral failure, a total train wreck. I don't know. Maybe you've done something that has brought so much guilt and shame and and you just don't know how you ever let it get to that point. The truth is, there may still be consequences to deal with because sin has consequences. There are scars sometimes, memories that can be overwhelming. Maybe you've prayed and repented and yet the guilt just consumes you and is robbing you of joy. Take your eyes off of the failures and focus them on Christ. Because that's what he wants. He wants to help you and me confront the sin in our lives, repent, and then be restored into a good relationship. He wants us to come back. It's no, it's no surprise that it was Peter, the one who denied Jesus, who wrote this in 1 Peter 5.10. He said, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you've suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. The God of grace will restore you. The Greek word that's used here in the New Testament for restore, that Peter chose, it could mean to repair or to adjust or to make perfect, but it's the same word, that was used in Matthew chapter 4 and Mark chapter 1 talking about the disciples when they were mending their nets or they were restoring their nets. And it's kind of fascinating if you think about it because the reason they were mending their nets is that they had been broken from something that had happened previously. They needed to fix them so they could turn around the next day and use them again. See, the, the mending dealt with fixing what was broken from the past, and then being useful again for service in the future. And friends, that's how grace works for us, okay? This is the bottom line. God's grace mends the past and offers us a brand new future. It mends what's been broken, and then it offers us this new opportunity to walk with him and to serve. I mean, do you understand what this means? You might be down, but you're not out. You may have a relationship that has been damaged between you and God, but it is not damaged beyond repair. You cannot wander too far from God if you want to come back. Now, some people don't want to come back, but you cannot wander too far away. That's the the nature of grace. Until that final breath, we have this opportunity for a second chance, and we receive it for ourselves. He does not force it on us. But whether you're coming to Christ for the first time or you're coming back to him after 
a time in the far country away, his grace is available. Listen again to what Peter wrote. I just love this. The warning and the promise. Be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that your brothers and sisters throughout the world are undergoing the same kinds of suffering. And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ after you've suffered a little while, will himself restore you, mend you, fix you, make you strong, firm, and steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. Now, really quickly, let me give you some reminders from this, just, just quickly. When I'm tempted, grace helps me stand. What does he say in verse 9? Resist the devil, standing firm. You're not standing firm in yourself. You're not fighting this battle alone, but rather with a rock-solid faith in Christ, we immerse ourselves in his word, we pray for strength, and we trust that he's going to help us overcome. So grace helps us stand. When I'm tired, grace makes me strong. Peter said, the God of all grace makes you what? Makes you strong. The verse that Nathan read to us at communion time, Matthew eleven twenty nine. 29, Jesus said, take my yoke upon you, learn from me, I'm gentle and humble in heart, you'll find rest for your souls. I love how the message paraphrase of the Bible puts this verse. Jesus says, walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn, I love this phrase, learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything too heavy or ill-fitting on you. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. We talked last week about how when we come to the end of ourselves, the end of our strength, the end of our ability to persevere, the end of our rope, man, that's when Jesus steps in and he gives us more strength. When we are at our weakest, we can be at our strongest because we get out of the way and we let his strength in. But then he says here lastly, when I'm broken, grace gives me hope. Man, when I'm broken, grace gives me hope. He will make you strong, firm, and steadfast, it says. The hope and promise of what's to come can strengthen us for whatever life throws at us. There is this assurance that comes through God's grace. You know, probably everybody here, most everybody here knows that last Sunday here in Bardstown, two teenagers died. One died in a car accident. One went to bed Saturday night and never woke up Sunday morning. And it's just been devastating. Two families that are just wrecked. And you look at that and you say, how do people even go on? How do people, how do people survive a tragedy like that? And the truth is, some people don't. But those who do, they do because they're clinging to the hope that comes through Christ, that there is something better, there's something still to come, that this is not the end. And for people who have just really messed up their lives, people who have just, just blown it, and they don't know how they're going to be able to survive the heartache and the despair and the shame, and the promise of God is that there is life on the other side of all of that. That there is still room in God's kingdom for you. That he still has a plan for you. That he can still use you in a meaningful way. 
we repent of our sins, we surrender to his will, and we find a new start. That's what grace is all about. Grace mends the past, but it also offers us a brand new future. No matter what we've done, God has a future plan. Listen, when your life collides with grace, everything changes. Let's pray. Father, we are confronted every day with our own sinfulness. Sometimes we get through the day, things go pretty well. Sometimes we have a bad day. Sometimes we are reliving a past that we can hardly stand to even think about. There are people in this room who are just such good people. But they're sinners saved by grace. There are people in this room who have such deep shame, have made choices that have just been devastating. But they're also sinners saved by grace. We are all in this same place, Lord, where we are not worthy of you. And yet you invite us into a relationship because of grace. Your unmerited favor, your undeserved, unearned blessing, your unconditional love, we thank you. May we surrender before you. We ask that you would not just mend our past, but that you'd give us a new future, that you'd let us serve, that you'd let us walk with you again, because that's the nature of this beautiful gift. We thank you. I pray for those maybe in this room who've never surrendered to Christ. Maybe today's the day. We do it because there's nowhere else to turn, of course. You offer what we need. And so, Lord Jesus, it's in your name that we pray. Amen.